from O'Melveny & Myers, this is Achieve With. Welcome uh, to the inaugural episode of Achieve With, uh, the new O'Melveny podcast featuring this country's leading lawyers talking about the biggest issues in technology, the economy, and of course, of course, the law. Today, we'll be talking about artificial intelligence, or AI, its promises, its risks, and potential regulatory frameworks that could help elevate the former and suppress the latter. And I can't imagine finding two better lawyers to bring to the table to kick this topic around. I have with me today O'Melveny partner Ron Klain, whom you may know as the former White House Chief of Staff for President Biden. Before leaving the administration in February of this year, Ron helped lay the groundwork for the administration's artificial intelligence policies. And also Tom Liu, who's been general counsel of Google DeepMind for almost six years. Prior to working in AI, Tom was counsel for autonomous driving company Waymo. So he, I think it's fair to say he knows a thing or two about what is known in the, in the Silicon Valley as disruption. Welcome uh, to you both, Ron and Tom. Thanks so much. Let, let me start with uh, Tom here. Tell us a bit about DeepMind's corporate mission activity. The first time I heard of the company was was when it was reported that its AI program dubbed AlphaGo had defeated the world champion Go player in 2016, causing the poor gentleman, I think, to retire from professional play. But I bet the company's more than that. Tell us a little bit yeah. about it. Sure. You know, it's funny. I, I remember staying up late at night, uh, actually watching that match. This is back in March of 2016. Uh, you know, I was watching this YouTube live feed of AlphaGo versus Lisa Dahl, who's this legendary Hall of Fame type you know, Go player. And the consensus in the AI community at the time was that it would be at least a decade away before an AI, AI system could defeat a human professional at Go. And I remember um, actually having very mixed emotions um, about those matches. I started off you know, cheering for AlphaGo. But then after it won three straight matches, I really started identifying with the underdog and the very human Lisa Dahl. And you know, he ended up coming back for a win for humanity in the fourth game uh, before AlphaGo took the final game. It was a pretty eye-opening experience for me. You know, I wasn't the only one. It turns out there are around 200 million people around the world watching. It was one of those you know, kind of man versus machine moments. It was a real eye-opener, you know, just demonstrating how capable these systems were becoming. So. Yes, it was only a game, but you could start to see, even then, I think the larger implications of these more capable and more general systems, that was a big motivator, uh, really, for me to join DeepMind just a couple of years later. Uh, and DeepMind, yeah, we, it's been around since since 2010, you know, way before all the current hype uh, about AI. Uh, the founders of DeepMind have spoken publicly about you know, how difficult it was to raise money back then, you know, all the eye rolls they got when they talked about AI. Uh, and so the company really has been you know, pioneering in this space for a long time. Um, and since the early days, the goal of DeepMind has uh, and continues to be uh, to build highly capable and general AI systems that achieve you know, human level or better performance across a very wide range of tasks and activities. Um, and initially, we focused on games because they were the you know, ideal test bed to develop and measure the capabilities of our systems, you know, you know relatively controlled environment with very clear metrics, you know, scores essentially for success. Um, and one of the early successes of the company was building a single agent that could play a whole suite of Atari games. So learning by itself, you know, just from the pixels on the screen. And so, you know, what's been really exciting to see is that we're now applying AI to some of the most, you know, challenging problems in society and science. And I know we'll get into this a bit more later, but, you know, things like using AI to better understand biology and proteins or using AI to help control 
you know, the plasma and the, and the nuclear fusion reaction, you know, we're, we're now applying AI to find solutions to these real world, big scientific problems that impact society. Um, and most recently, just a few months ago, we joined forces with another leading AI lab at Google called Google Brain. And with this new combined unit called Google DeepMind, we are now also at the center of powering the next generation of billion user Google products. Uh, so it's a very exciting time. It is indeed. I understand that these uh, AI systems rely on so-called neural networks, uh, computer chips that work together and are designed to loosely replicate how a human brain processes information and learns from experience. Can, can you describe to somebody like me, who is a computer neophyte, how these neural networks sort of work at a general level? Yes, I, I should say I have a law degree, not a computer science degree. Uh, so you tell me if this is a, a good explanation or not, but I'll give it a try. Uh, a neural network is basically an architecture for an AI program inspired by the way you know our brains work. So it's made up of the layers of these kind of virtual decision-making cells, we call them neurons, connected to each other. And these neurons learn by adjusting their connections uh, to get better at tasks. So you can imagine it essentially as kind of like a digital brain that starts with guesses and then refines them essentially through trial and error um, and feedback. Um, but I want to step back just just a moment and talk, you know, in a more holistic conceptual view about, you know, what what the differentiation here is. The key thing to understand is that there are basically two different approaches that the field has taken to developing AI systems. You know, on the one hand, uh, historically, uh, there's been a lot of energy put um, to what are called expert systems that rely on you know, really hard-coded knowledge. So what you're basically doing there is, is you're handcrafting the solution to a problem with very, very specific directions. So for example, like you tell a robot to move an item three meters to the left under these lighting conditions using this amount of force. As you can probably guess, that kind of system can be very brittle. It can't easily learn to adapt to different conditions. And so what you've seen really over the past, say decade or so, particularly with the onset of much more compute and much more data, is this uh, learning system approach, where instead of you know programming specific solutions, you build AI systems that are able to learn for themselves, and they learn their own solutions to problems. And so what you're seeing is that these systems are becoming really more and more general in nature. So they can generalize to all sorts of new tasks, you know, tasks that they've never seen before. And the promise really of these systems is that you know, they could help us solve problems that wouldn't otherwise be able to solve. Um, on our own. So let me just tell you one fun example of this. You know, you mentioned AlphaGo. There was a famous move in game two um, of that of that challenge match. It was move 37 to be exact, where AlphaGo placed a stone in a completely surprising place. You know, the commentators who were doing the, the kind of play-by-play of the match thought it had made a mistake. It turns out that 100 moves later, that move, you know, connected perfectly with another set of moves and played a key role in AlphaGo's victory in that game. And the really fascinating thing is that the DeepMind research team went back to look at the data and AlphaGo itself had calculated a one in 10,000 chance that a human would have made that move. Um, so talk about you know the road less traveled, but it decided to make you know that move anyway um, and it made all the difference. So interesting. Um, you alluded to this earlier, Tom, that another one of the tools that Google DeepMind had developed was able to predict the structure of proteins um, Tell us a little bit more about that and, and and maybe free associate with us for a little bit and tell us about the, the benefits that might come from that kind of application. 
Yeah, what you're referring to um, is a system called AlphaFold, which I think is probably the best proof point out there on the potential for AI to fundamentally transform scientific discovery. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, entire industries in, in a huge way. So this was a actually 50-year-old grand challenge in biology on the problem of protein folding. So, you know, as you probably know, proteins are the workhorses of biology. So every function in the body is mediated by proteins. So, you know, I was pre-med in high school. So I'm going to take you back to high school biology. Um, I say pre-med in college. Uh, each protein has a specific amino acid sequence. You can think of it as a genetic code for a protein. And that amino acid sequence is described by basically a string of letters. But the function of a protein is really determined by the three-dimensional shape of that protein. And so this, this protein folding problem, this was the grand challenge for the last 50 years. How do you predict the 3D shape of a protein just from its amino acid sequence? The reason it's so important is that how a protein folds determines its function in the body. So you know, let's just take drug discovery. To design drugs to combat diseases, you first need to know what the surface of the protein looks like. So you can select those drug compounds that target specific parts of the protein where the drugs can bind to. So the most famous example of that recently, obviously, is the spike protein on the coronavirus for, for COVID. So normally, it can take someone four to six years, like an entire PhD thesis, to experimentally determine a single 3D protein structure. Huge amount of trial and error involving you know, experimental techniques like X-ray crystallography and so forth. So D-Mine developed AlphaFold to use AI to computationally predict the 3D structure of proteins from just amino acid sequence. Right. So this was an incredible scientific achievement. It was named by Science Magazine as the breakthrough of the year uh, in 2021. And what's you know more, DeepMind then used AlphaFold to fold 200 million proteins, right? nearly all the proteins known to science, and then we made them freely available for the scientific community. Right. So today, over 1 million researchers are now using AlphaFold in their predictions and their research to tackle things like developing drugs for no neglected diseases, developing vaccines, even creating enzymes that more easily degrade plastic waste. So it, it's, it's, I think, an incredible scientific achievement, and we're going to see the impacts of it in many different areas in the years to come. It, it's, uh, it sounds like a fascinating development, but one of the interesting things to me is that a lot of these AI developments uh, like AlphaFold really weren't front page news and mainstream media, what really captured the public's attention was the development of large language models like uh, ChatGPT. Why do you think that is? Why, why is now the public's attention uh, focused on AI uh, uh, related to ChatGPT and the like? Yeah, I think you're right. ChatGPT was the first kind of viral and very consumer friendly user interface that really demonstrated to people what a you know, kind of more capable and general purpose AI system could be. You know, AlphaFold was an incredible AI breakthrough, but it was in a very specialized domain of, you know, structural biologists. Isn't something, protein folding, you know, uh, drug discovery, isn't something your average person on the street is familiar with. You know, the interesting thing about ChatGPT in particular too, is that the underlying model powering ChatGPT had actually been released many months before. It was really the chatbot interface that really, I think, turbocharged appeal to like, you know, normal everyday people who don't, you know, live and breathe this stuff um, at, uh, at work. And so, everybody has, you know, kind of their own aha moment when it comes to this new kind of you know, general-purpose chatbot technology. Um, I was actually, you know, talking recently with a uh, really prominent Supreme Court litigator who was saying he had been in touch with one of the developers 
of these AI chatbots. And they, you know, he fed in the briefs from some of his recent Supreme Court arguments. And then he asked the AI chatbot, AI chatbot to predict, you know, the questions a particular justice would ask at oral argument. And the AI system ended up predicting two out of the three questions that were actually asked by the justice. Um, and then, you know, he paused and he turned to me and he said, that's exactly what I pay my associates and clerks at the Supreme Court to do, uh, which is pretty remarkable. So, you know, um, maybe this means, you know, we'll see some lower Supreme Court bonuses at law firms in the coming years. Um, you know, it's it's really remarkable, you know, how, how you know, how much uh, the technology is, has really uh, kind of transformed the game. I'll say. Ron, let me uh, let me turn to you from from your perspective, having guided the Biden administration on this subject. Where do you see the most dramatic benefits from AI in the in the short term, say in the next ten years, in terms of you know, improving the human condition? You know, healthcare is at the top of my list, but what's your list? Healthcare is definitely near the top of my list. I would also say weather forecasting and more precise uh, forecasting of floods uh, and weather severe weather events. I think already AI applications are being used to pinpoint forecast when the Ganges River is going to flood and where it's going to flood, uh, which is saving thousands of lives in India already every year. Uh, it used to be tens of thousands of deaths. Ganges flooded because people continue to work in agriculture and hoping they would get it right. And now when you can give very specific warnings to people about where it will flood and when it will flood, people withdraw from agriculture and move themselves to safety save many people that way. And I think around the world, we're seeing more extreme weather events, being able to pinpoint warnings with more precision in terms of the time and the location where bad things will happen. It's going to save a lot of lives. And weather kills a lot of people all over the world every year. And so I think that's, I think that kind of forecasting prowess with precision, um, both location and timing will save a lot of lives. I think healthcare obviously is a big way. I think overall, in general, just come, um, managing the consequences of climate change, helping us de develop mitigation strategies and new technologies to reverse uh, the direction of climate change, I think is also a way with long run that AI will save a lot of lives and make life better. And I think the list is very, very long. And I think the question we face as society is, if we make sure those benefits outweigh any of the possible risks and dangers from AI, that's the real regulatory challenge here in the United States and around the world. I want to talk about risks in a little bit, but uh, Tom, I, I'm obliged to ask uh, your list uh, of the areas of greatest promise for AI uh, to the extent it differs from Ron's. I, I mean, I think Ron's points are, are great ones. I, I share those uh, those upsides on the, in those areas for sure. Um, you know, I'm really bullish uh, on AI and scientific discovery. We talked about AlphaFold already. We're also doing at Google DeepMind quite a lot of pioneering research in fields like quantum chemistry fundamental mathematics, neuroscience, and you know, these kind of root node scientific problems that I think are going to unlock many other downstream applications. So scientific discovery is definitely high on my list. You know, Ron talked about climate change, sustainability. Uh, very, I'm, I'm very bullish on AI having positive impacts there too. We've actually done some work in this space uh, as well. We, For example, we developed a system to optimize uh, the cooling systems in Google's data centers. And we managed to save about 30% of the energy used just by optimizing the different variables in a more efficient way. Uh, we're also using AI to create you know, entirely new technology. So, so one example, uh, we partnered with the Swiss Plasma Center at EPFL to develop the first AI system to successfully control a nuclear fusion plasma in a tokamak, which is basically a machine that controls the plasma inside uh, using magnets. Um, and so our research teams will use AI to predict what the shape of the plasma is going to be 
and then we change the, magne the magnetic field in milliseconds to keep the plasma in place so it doesn't go out of control, which is you know one of the key gating issues with getting fusion working. And, and there's just so many other potential applications um, in the sustainability space. Um, maybe the last thing I would say in my third category would be AI and education. I think uh, that the, where you can have truly personalized tutors, you know, which studies have shown, you know, could make a, a, a very big difference. Um, I had a fun example the other day of an AI education use case where, you know, let's say you have a student who isn't really motivated to learn math, but that same student is, you know, a huge, let's say, 49ers fan, uh, as I am here in the Bay Area. You could use that large language model to reformulate the questions, you know, with their learning algebra or geometry, reformulate the question to be about football in the 49ers. Um, and that's actually, we do, we do a lot I think, to motivate students to actually solve the problem, you know? Um, and so the, the, I think the point is there's just tremendous opportunities for truly personalized education. Um, and I think that's on the near horizon. Wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about the risk now. I, in, in May, a group of AI industry leaders, including, I believe, DeepMind's CEO, Demis uh, Hassabis, and 18 other uh, DeepMind-affiliated officials signed on to a statement on AI risk, and I'm going to read it in its entirety, 22 words, uh, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Now, to me, those are those are 22 very scary words. And uh, I guess, let me, let me turn to you, Tom. How would you describe what is animating the concerns among the scientists and engineers that know artificial intelligence best? Yeah. So fundamentally, you know, this is about developing AI in a way that's socially responsible, right? And, and you know, ourselves, the other leading labs, I think we take seriously the responsibility to build safe, secure, and trustworthy systems, particularly as these technologies and systems get more powerful. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that's the only way we're going to get the huge upsides we've been talking about with this technology is to do it in a way where societally fundamentally trusts this technology. And so, you know, it's important to think about both the near-term risks and the longer-term risks, and also to bring the different communities of experts and civil society together to really make sure the governance around this technology takes a holistic spectrum of considerations into account. Um, and, and I think it's it's important to emphasize, it doesn't mean we think, you know, these bad outcomes are the most likely. We wouldn't be building AI if we believe, uh, uh, you know, that was the, the likely outcome. But I think the point of the letter was to just signify that even if there's a very small chance, we do need to take these risks seriously and to work to find ways to mitigate these risks, you know, before the technology, you know, matures to that state. You don't want to be caught in the back foot and having that debate and the technology is already so advanced and those kinds of dangerous, you know, risks are at your doorstep. So I think that's what the signers in the letter were motivated by. There's so much research that's needed about understanding the systems better, coming up with the right safety evals thresholds, best practices for these systems, which can be translated then into governance um, and regulation. I think what we're seeing is real movement in that now in a way that that would have you know, been hard to imagine even eight to 10 months ago. And, and I think that's a good thing. And Tom, let me just add, ask, you know, you know, given that these systems one day may have capacities that exceed ours, uh, how can we make sure that the guardrails aren't, our guardrails that the systems overcome and and do dangerous things? I mean, I think that's that's the real danger, which is uh, you know, how can we how can we control something that's more intelligent and more perhaps more adept than we are and can evade whatever controls we're talking about? Yeah, and this is where you, you know, kind of the the type of research that we and the other frontier labs are doing is is um, very focused on figuring out 
how do we responsibly scale the capabilities of these technologies? Um, and you know, we you can think about different uh, metrics and categories that you can put in place. So you know, if a model has this set of capabilities, these are kinds of safety parameters you put in place. And you're talking about you know the really capable ones that are starting to exhibit potential things like exfiltration or loss of control, building them first in really hard sandboxes, right, and developing the, the capability to evaluate them. And, and make sure we have a systemic approach. Evaluating risk is, is critical. So I think you know we we're, we don't see that yet uh, in the systems that are of today. But uh, again, I think the point of the letter is making people aware the trajectory that we're on, the exponential progress innovation that we've been seeing. We need to be able to responsibly scale it in a way that takes into account the possibilities of that in the future. Iran, hey um, I've got to ask uh, since you have such a deep experience in the political system, what's your sense of the threat that AI poses to the political system. Maybe it, maybe it's a step short of extinction level risk, but but maybe not. Well, I think the extinction level risk thing is not a political risk. It's a whole different problem. And, and it's one that does definitely worry me. I mean, it, um, we're talking about technology we don't fully understand. When you talk to people who are building these models, they constantly talk about how they produce results that they didn't foresee. And uh, you add that with uh, super intelligence and it seems a little unnerving. Um, what I'd say in the political system, there's a lot of focus on deep fakes, on misinformation, so on and so forth. I think these things are all risks. But what I worry about more in the short term is the use of these systems to hyper, hyper target voters. Uh, basically, fundamentally, a very revved up version of what we saw in the 2016 campaign when Facebook was used this way uh, by much more rudimentary technologies, which helped add to the polarization and the division uh, and a lot of the hostility in our politics. And AI gives uh, political practitioners the tools to really uh, rev that up and really, really hyper, hyper target people and find what really motivates their anger, what really motivates the reaction in a way that is the opposite of kind of the rational debate we like to see in politics. So I think hyper targeting is, is my most immediate concern. I think there are ways to deal with the deep fakes and the misinformation. Um, and those will continue to be problems in our politics with or without AI. AI can definitely exacerbate them. But, um, you know, I mean, look, I think we saw already an AI report of an attack on the Pentagon drove down the stock market by hundreds of billions of dollars in a few hours. And so its ability to wreak havoc with our political system more broadly is there. So that we have to manage. Um, but in the short term, I think candidates can use it to really exacerbate the polarization and division we already have in the country. Uh, thanks for that, uh, Ron. Let me let me continue with you. Uh, you know, some in the AI world have uh, essentially been pleading for regulation of AI and its development. Uh, thinking in particular of Sam Altman, uh, the founder and CEO of OpenAI, and his testimony before Congress last May. Now, you know, reflecting on the development of the cryptocurrency industry, th those uh, key early figures were not early to market with pleas for government regulation, uh, nor were the uh, pioneers of uh, social media companies. What's different with uh, artificial intelligence companies? Why are they uh, suggesting regulation? I think, Brian, I think it's a couple of things. One, I think that uh, on the risk side, as we talked about, there is this, there is how, whatever percentage you assign to it, there is this risk of an existential threat, which seems like something that everyone agrees we need to try to manage here. Uh, which cryptocurrency did not pose, and social media for all their whatever their ills and evils are, uh, doesn't throw risk of taking over and destroying humanity. 
So I think I think the risk is higher with AI. Um, and I think the cryptocurrency, look, a lot of cryptocurrency is used by criminal organizations to do criminal things. It's not a surprise that the criminals don't want Congress to regulate it. Um, but I think you know most people involved in AI are trying to be socially responsible actors and are concerned about the, these these risk issues, whatever probability they give to them. And so they want to try to make sure we have the right framework to develop AI in a way that's, um, that that uh, maximizes benefits and minimizes the risk of some catastrophic thing going wrong. How much, Ron, do you think that the request for regulation for, for government intervention here is more about clearing away obstacles that the current legal system poses to full exploitation of artificial intelligence, you know, for its, for its broad promises? I was thinking of... Uh, the current lawsuits against open AI involving copyright violations is right. an example. I, I do think, I think that's a good example. I think the content creation community, which um, kind of feels like they were asleep with the switch when the internet came along and the internet destroyed a lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, business models and content creation, uh, particularly the music industry. Uh, they're determined not to have the same thing happen. They've gone to court early uh, on AI. And I think some of the idea to regulate this is try to resolve some of these business issues between the content creators and the AI companies to make sure there's a way that um, uh, AI can do what it can to create content without destroying intellectual property, without having a lot of litigation about that. So I think some of that is definitely around that. I do think some of the call for regulation in the U.S. is the desire to see the U.S. set a global standard for regulatory framework so that we're not left with regulation by other parts of the world as the global standard. And I think there's a view that in the U.S. we're more likely to balance right uh, the different regulatory concerns against the desire for innovation. We're a country that favors innovation. And I th having us develop the right regulatory framework here in the U.S., if we could lead in this, could set the right global standard uh, as opposed to having it come from other parts of the world. So I think there are some of those, but I do think most of it is socially responsible actors in the AI field who are worried about these whatever probability risks of more devastating threats I want to see them addressed. And I also think that I give the AI community a lot of credit for being candid about the problems with AI and the issues, the challenges around uh, non-discrimination and transparency. And and uh, so I think I think the I think the is acting in a responsible way, try to get the policies in place that will allow AI to do all the good things it can do for us without with a, by minimize and minimize the social negatives. When you were chief of staff, uh, the Biden administration published a. An artificial intelligence bill of rights, and and more recently, after you left the administration, just this past July, it announced uh, that it had gotten commitments from industry leaders in the development of AI with respect to pre-release confirmation of the safety and security of their applications. Something you alluded to. Tell us a bit about these initiatives, and what do you think is going to be next on the administration's AI agenda, Brian? I think that. Um... You know, I think the administration, the White House, continue to try to broaden the voluntary commitments from the industry, both in terms of broaden the number of commitments and broaden the number of companies signed up to the commitments. I think this, I think it's made a very strong start on issues of transparency, bias, whatnot, um, and I think that I think that's all moved in a very good direction. Um, I think there's still a push for Congress to act, to take these voluntary commitments and lock them into law. Senator Warren and Senator Mark have come out and said that the voluntary commitments are not good enough. They binding legal commitments. There's a process going on at Capitol Hill led by Senator Schumer and Senator Young of Indiana to look at possibility of legislation. I still think that's kicking around out there, still a possibility. But I think the challenge is all these things so far don't really 
uh, yet the core risk here that we've been talking about, the big existential threat, whether or not there's a way to you can't, to regulate around the the the, intel, the growing intelligence and rapid advancement of these models, and I think that's I think that's the big challenge that the regulators have yet to come up with a meaningful way to address. One of the questions you alluded to earlier, Ron, is uh, the development of of uh, uh, regulatory packages in the United States in. Uh, European countries and whether the U.S. can be in the lead on that. Um, Tom, uh, uh, Google DeepMind has a proposal for AI governance that contemplates an international approach uh, to the regulation of AI. Uh, give us your insights into why uh, your company thinks a global regu regulatory apparatus is crucial here. Yeah, I mean, the simple answer is, you know, no one organization or one country has all the answers. You know, we need collaboration, we need coordination, uh, as Ron alluded to, from governments, from industry, from civil society, from academia. We want to do this in a way internationally uh, that doesn't, you know, create a patchwork of conflicting laws and regulations, right? If you have that, it's going to stifle innovation and growth. It's going to lead to less careful or less responsible actors, you know, form shopping. You want to have legitimate, widely accepted international norms and standards, and I think that's critical. We're going to have really any chance at influencing other actors, you know, state actors or otherwise, from taking unethical or risky approaches um, to AI. And uh, you know, as Ron mentioned, I think the White House has really taken this to heart. They have engaged really well, I think, with other companies, uh, with other countries, on their AI commitments. Um, and you see this also, I think, with the UK government and the EU as well. Uh, you know, embracing the notion and importance of this kind of more international coordinated approach to AI governance. There's, a, uh, as you probably know, a big summit coming up um, just in a few weeks in the UK, the first global AI safety summit. Um, and I think they're really embracing this kind of internationalized approach. Now, this doesn't mean we need a single kind of global overarching regulator for AI, but it does mean uh, that I think we should try and make sure there is robust coordination among the different national and international efforts. Um, that are underway. And so uh, the goal is really to develop a set of consistent principles that's really going to provide a strong baseline for responsible development of AI on a global basis. Brian, I, I, I agree with the spirit of what Tom's saying. And certainly in terms of the US, Europe, UK, it all makes sense. I think the challenge we face is China. I was on a panel recently about AI in Seoul, and I was raising some of these issues. And someone said, well, China's figured out how to regulate AI they've made sure that AI never contradicts the regime. And um, that is a form of regulation and it may be highly effective in China, but I hardly think that's what we'd want to adopt as the global standard. And I think, um, you know, how China may regulate AI uh, may be very different than how we would do it. Because I, I think, you know, notwithstanding all the complexities and risks that a democratic society faces, we're always going to want to make sure that AI uh, and anyone anyone who uses it can can challenge the governing regime in the U.S. and in the West, and can use it to produce uh, pieces of dissent. And I don't think we want to sign on to a regime where China is using it to advance its autocratic aims and its geopolitical aims. And so I think I think I think China is a special problem here. I think the risk that they use AI to advance their global aims is is high, and uh, and the risk that their regulatory regime winds up just being about protecting the regime is also quite high. And I think these are both challenges 
uh, for international cooperation here. That said, I think it's very important for the U.S. and Europe and the U.K. to work together because we share a common interest in uh, shared values and a common interest in innovation, hopefully. Um, I worry a little bit that Europe, um, you know, tends to focus more on regulating technology and a little less on innovation and technology, particularly in recent years. And it's been posed a challenge for U.S. companies. And, um, you know, we need to find a way to to be a, a global leader of the a leader of the West, at least, a leader of the free societies, at least, and then face the challenge that China and AI poses to us. Is it, is it realistic, uh, Ron, to think that the United States actually could be in the lead in shaping an AI regulatory and governance structure? I do think it's realistic. I think that, um, I think that, um, you know, we have the global leadership to do it. I think, uh, you know, the company, most, almost all the companies are here in the U.S. Uh, and I think that, um, I think that the importance of this technology is such that it's worth us trying to build the right framework here and then really work hard with our European friends to get them to support and adopt our framework or as closely as possible. And I think that's what's in the interest of uh, democratic countries, democratic societies, and, um, and and also in innovation. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, 10,000 different approaches here, with every little government in Europe making its own set of AI rules is not going to be good for Europe. It's not going to be good for AI. It's not going to be good for innovation. It's not going to really be the most effective way um, to protect us from the potential dangers of AI. So, um, so I, I agree with Tom that some kind of coordinated global approach is possible. I do think China is a very special problem here, poses very special threats and risks uh, to the rest of the world. I suspect most of our listeners are lawyers, so I want to switch gears here and talk about how the current legal system affects those who would develop and deploy artificial intelligence applications. Tom, we touched on this earlier with Ron, but are there aspects of the U.S. legal system that you see as impediments? fulfilling the promise of artificial intelligence? I think the U.S. legal system, you know, being one that is heavily common law based, actually has some inherent structural advantages when, con you know, conceptually should be able to adapt, you know, more quickly and flexibly to quickly evolving, you know, technologies like AI, at least compared to more codified or continental law systems. Um, but even here, you know, in the U.S., the fact of the matter is this technology is changing so rapidly that I think inevitably the legal system will be playing catch up uh, to a certain extent. You know, all of the thorny legal issues around technology and the internet, privacy, competition, copyright, First Amendment, misinformation, you know, content liability, all of these things and more are at play with AI even as it exists today, right? And not to mention where this technology will be going um, in the next five and 10 years. Um, and you know, Congress, you know, they may end up passing something around AI in the next year, uh, but the chances of it being a kind of comprehensive regulation, like the EU AI Act uh, or GDPR, is probably small. And so, it's more likely, I think, you'll see many of these legal issues, you know, being resolved through the courts. Um, and I think what we're seeing is that, you know, just like being a privacy lawyer, I think, has been a bit of a hot ticket in the technology law space in recent years. You're starting to see. You know, a, a large number of law firms create new AI law and policy practice groups. Um, and I've heard, you know, the uh, International Association of Privacy Professionals is also doing a big push on AI. And so I do think um, as a legal profession, we could all, uh, I think, do more upskilling of our lawyers and attorneys on the fundamentals of AI technology. Um, I don't think you need to be an AI legal specialist 
uh, to be a successful lawyer, you know, in this space. But I do think that no matter what industry you're in, you know, financial services or healthcare or transportation or, or what have you, all of these uh, industries, I think, are going to be impacted by AI. Uh, and so all of us, I think, in the legal profession will need to understand and grapple with the implications of these technologies, uh, because I think our clients will be asking for it. Um, and the more we understand these technologies, how they work, what are the limitations, what are the opportunities, what are the pitfalls, the more effective we will be um, in our role um, as legal advisors. Well, taking the legal system as it is, rather than what it might become with you know, additional legislation or, or, or thoughtful reforms, what, what kinds of legal risks are keeping you up at night as you advise your company? There are a lot of you know AI governance frameworks and guardrails and you know proposed policies in motion right now, uh, but very little is settled law. Uh, and I think the job of being a lawyer at a company like Google DeepMind is pretty different from you know many other legal jobs. There really isn't any governing case law or regulation on much of what we do uh, that's directly on point. And so you have both this opportunity and challenge. You know when you're you know, a counseling in-house in a kind of bleeding edge technology company where you have to set out internally what the guardrails are, but really have a really keen sense of risk calibration. You know, there's nothing but gray around you. Uh, nothing is black and white. So you need to explain, you know, to executives, to regulators, to other stakeholders, why you're setting the guardrails here, you know, constantly assessing and reassessing the external regulatory environment, the litigation environment, the legal environment, and being flexible you know, to make changes along the way um, and all in a really, really intense competitive environment too, right? And so I think what keeps me going is realizing just how important it is to get it right. At the end of the day, um, you know, we're only going to achieve, again, the huge benefits of AI for society if that AI is trusted by society. And I think the legal team uh, at a place like Google DeepMind has a critical role to play uh, in making that happen. So Brian, if I can touch on one other issue, we were talking before about administration policy in Congress, there's also the policy intervention of antitrust regulators in this field, which are somewhat independent from the White House and the core administration policy, including the Federal Trade Commission, um, which is looking at the competitive issues around AI. And it's an interesting question because, um, you know, obviously we talk about large language models, people who have a lot of data have a certain kind of advantage because they start with a lot of stuff. And so there's a natural question about the competitive situation, the competitive advantages that large tech companies have going into this field. And, uh, but I think it's more complicated than usual because uh, the, the basic call for making everything open uh, and uh, sharing all the data may have certain competitive advantages, but may raise the risk of some of the negative things we were talking about. And uh, there may be reasons why uh, not making people share information is a good thing. I mean, in the quote from the May letter you read, People compared um, the risk of AI, the risk of nuclear weapons. And one thing we've done with nuclear weapons is encourage nuclear weapons makers to put all the data on the internet, let everyone decide their own on, own path on nuclear weapons. And I'm not saying that we need to do the same thing here in terms of classification and security, but I think that the compet competition issues here intersect with some of the regulatory issues in a way that may be different than other instances where we have to balance uh, potentially the desirability of of more sharing of data, more competition, more openness in systems versus the risk that that allows bad actors to get their hands on these things and build bad models. So um, I think that's I think that's the that's the complexity here. Uh, keeping keeping with you, Ron, um, and and keeping in mind the 
administration's uh, artificial intelligence bill of rights um, that was proposed uh, earlier this year. Um, you know, look in your crystal ball. Tell us what you see uh, in the way of uh, kinds of disputes over artificial intelligence that are going to be that you think will be clogging court dockets uh, in in the next several years. I'm curious, curious what you see. Well, as we alluded to before, I think the first place where these things will break out is in issues over intellectual property rights. Um, and we'll start with the content creation industry, who will say that some song produced by AI or some movie or some video unfairly exploited someone's IP rights. And so um, you know, the first time you see your AI singing a song about bad, bad romances and breakups, I expect Taylor Swift to show up in court and have her day. Um, so, um, so I think that's the first place, unless the, unless the two industries can work out a, a, a business understanding around these IP issues, um, I think you're going to see litigation around the IP issues. Then you'll see more esoteric litigation around the IP issues. People will say, my data was uploaded into one of these models, and something I learned, something I did, uh, is being used to, um, to educate these models, and I'm not benefiting from it. So go back to Tom's example of talking with a prime, premier Supreme Court litigator about him training a model on his own filings and helping him think about his preparations. Uh, most of these filings we make the Supreme Court are all public matters of public record, so it could take them and use them to train a model to be a great Supreme Court litigator. And one of the litigators who wrote one of those briefs might show up and say, hey, even though this was public record information, uh, you using my brief writing to train your model to be a better brief writer than I am is an unfor exploitation of my intellectual property. We can see litigation around that. Um, a lot of people's knowledge and learning is pouring into these models without their awareness and without compensation for them. And people might try to find claims around that. Uh, and so I think, and I think that the third thing will be these competition issues about whether or not big tech companies have an unfair advantage in this space and, and whether or not they're exploiting their unfair advantage in a way that's anti-competitive. And, um, and so I think those are the three big areas of legal action we're going to see uh, right, off the, right off the bat here. Uh, Tom, your take? Yeah, I mean, just a couple follow-up points. I think Ron makes some, some very good observations. Um, you know, on the issue of, you know, creative content um, and copyright, I think it really is an important issue uh, and one that it does deserve a lot of careful thought and attention. Um, you know, I think uh, what you're seeing, even with, for example, what's happening in Hollywood today, um, you know, the, the writers being able to reach an agreement, but the actors still on strike and obviously, you know, quite different issues being presented, but on the writer's side, being able to reach a negotiated outcome on the use of AI, I think is a big win. But I think to the extent we can get a business rationale, kind of a win-win situation where people come to the table and get to a negotiated outcome where you find growth and opportunity and using this to develop, you know, both sides' interests, I think that's, that's where we want to be. Um, and so, you know, from a Google perspective, I think you know, we've always wanted to support and continue to support the uh, and believe in the importance of an open web, a thriving kind of publisher ecosystem. Um, and how we do that in the age of generative AI is a question that's really closely tied to business models and products. And I think there's tremendous opportunity to unlock, you know, new business models, new new areas of, of uh, uh, growth for artists, for entrepreneurs, for journalists. Uh, you know, just to give you one example, you know, YouTube recently announced a collaboration with the Universal Music Group. So uh, letting artists use AI to make new creations that, again, we think is going to be a win-win for everyone. Uh, but I think that's where we really got to focus our efforts. I think, you know, the litigation, the regulation, the legislation, 
that'll be in the backdrop. But I think the business questions and negotiations are reaching ways to really uh, tap into this technology's potential for business growth and opportunities is, I think, where a lot of the focus should be. Thank, thanks so much for that insight, Tom. I, we're, we're just about out of time, but uh, since we do have Ron here, I I have to pose a question about the 2024 election season, or which I guess has already started, uh, candidly. Um, I mentioned, uh, uh, we, we discussed earlier the risk that Artificial intelligence will fuel deep fakes and other disinformation that could could add to political instability. And, and Ron, you talked about uh, hyper-targeting of individual voters. Um, if you were running a campaign uh, today, you weren't at a law firm, but you were running a presidential campaign, how would you go about managing that kind of threat? Well, look, I think um, it's important to the AI industry think about this. I think it's encouraging to me that Google's announced that they're going to watermark any political content that was generated with AI, I think that's a good, that's, you know, that's for those that are available on the YouTube platform. I think that's a very, very good positive step. We've already seen uh, deep fake generated video is the first, uh, first ad run of the campaign by Republican allies when President Biden announced for reelection. Um, and I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, and I think it's going to be coming on both sides to call it out, uh, to, to not use the technology that way. There's plenty of, material to make your arguments and politics about making things up fully and um and hopefully uh hopefully both sides will do that um but i think if i were running a presidential campaign i certainly would be looking at ai find ways to help our campaign do things better uh to try to figure out how to more effectively use our resources to get to the voters we need to get to the polls to win um you know think a little bit about targeting models and a little bit about resource allocation and some of the things that ai could do very well um, and help think about what the right appeals are to, to voters who are undecided. But I think it's potential for abuses is a serious po- prospect in 2024. This technology, unfortunately, is far enough along and ubiquitous enough. I'm sure we'll see campaigns use it the wrong way in 2024. I think it's important for the industry to call that out and to try to uh, mitigate that any way it can. Well, thank you, Ron. And thank you, uh, Tom, as well, for your insights today. It's been a fascinating chat, and I hope we can all gather again, maybe a year or so down the road and discuss in retrospect how history has measured up to the expectations we've uh, offered today. Thanks so much to you both for being a part of the inaugural Achieve With uh, podcast. Thank you. What? Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Achieve With, an O'Melveny and Myers podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's Rules of Professional Conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP. Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York, 10036. Phone 1212 326 2000.